Welcome to the Wellness and Wanderlust podcast. We're here to demystify wellness and help you add a little adventure to your life. Tune in for a new episode every week where we'll hear from incredible guests and talk about ways to be happier and healthier in our new normal. I'm your host, Valerie Moses. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. If you're listening to this episode when it first comes out, I want to wish you a very happy Thanksgiving. I'm grateful for so many things in my life, including this incredible community and the opportunity to speak with such amazing people every single week. No matter how you found the show or where you're listening from, I truly want to thank you for being here and I hope you'll stick around. This show is all about creating our best lives, whatever that looks like for each of us. And the timing for this week's episode couldn't be any better. This week, I sit down with Andrew Jordan Nance, founder of Mindful Arts San Francisco and author of several children's books on mindfulness, including Puppy Mind. Mindful Arts San Francisco is an organization that provides mindfulness instruction to youth in underserved San Francisco schools, and they are doing some pretty impactful things. In our conversation, Andrew and I talk about why mindfulness is so important for our youth to cultivate and how we as adults can better support the young people in our lives when they're dealing with their own big emotions. We also discuss why joy can sometimes be scary, how we can find the pleasant and present, games to help us practice more gratitude, and how we can hold space for others and be more present in our conversations. These are important lessons for us at every age, so even if you don't have kids in your life, you'll still be able to learn a lot from this conversation. I know I had plenty of great takeaways. I'm going to let our guest fill you in more, so without further ado, let's hear from Andrew Jordan Nance. Hi, Andrew. Thank you so much for joining us at Wellness and Wanderlust today. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you, Valerie. Well, thank you. I cannot wait to talk to you and really dive into some of the work that you do. And before we really dive in, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Andrew Jordan Nance, and I'm the author of four books, Puppy Mine, The Lion in Me, The Barefoot King, and an entire curriculum that focuses on using theater, storytelling, and art activities to convey the principles of mindfulness. I also founded an organization called Mindful Arts San Francisco, and I did that in 2014. And I've been with that organization or that program ever since. We're actually a a program of the San Francisco Education Fund, which is the volunteer arm of the school district. And we bring mindfulness into the San Francisco public schools. And we use theater, storytelling, and art to convey the principles of mindfulness. And this last year in the pandemic, we had about 40 volunteers teaching all over San Francisco. And the volunteers were from all over the state of California. That is so incredible. And I think that what your organization is doing is so inspiring and so needed. I'd love to know how you first kind of discovered mindfulness and how you've been incorporating that in your life. Yeah. Well, it's a long story, but I think we have time. I was a a theater guy. I went to New York University and eventually found my way back to San Francisco. I grew up here and found a job at the New Conservatory Theater Center in in San Francisco. And I became their conservatory director, which meant that I ran their school for kids and adults for almost 20 years. And uh, we had classes all over San Francisco. It really grew under my watch and it was just really 
proud of the work I did there. I got to do a lot of acting as well. I got to do a lot of directing and producing. So I was really, really had found this, this wonderful artistic home for all those many years. But my mom passed away back then. That was probably 2013, I believe. And I just felt like, gosh, you know, life is so short and I just want to try to have another chapter in this hopefully long life of mine. And I, so I left there after about a six month notice. And in fact, I think I reneged once and then I then I said, no, I really have to do this. I have to do this. And so I didn't know what I was going to do, but I took some classes on the science of well-being and learning how to get into that flow state that a guy by the name of Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi uh, talks about. And, that, and the flow state is that that state that we all have gotten into at one point or another. Maybe it's when you're skiing or when you're painting or drawing or gardening, something that you just love to do and time just sort of disappears. Um, so that that really intrigued me and because I felt like I was experiencing that on the stage when I performed. And then I went to the Greater Good Science Center's Symposium on Social and Emotional Learning in the summer of 2014. And they were talking about um, mindfulness there. And I, I'd heard about it a little bit in this, this class I'd taken on the science of well-being. But they were playing uh, these mindful games with all of us. And I had this light bulb moment as they were showing us these games. And I said, wait a minute, these are the games that I learned at university. And these are the games that I play with my actors or that I played as an actor in rehearsals. And so I realized that theater training and mindfulness training are really, really similar. They both invite the participants to take a deep breath, connect with their emotions, connect with the people around them, connect with their internal landscapes, their outward landscapes, and really be in the present in order to be skillful with what is presented to you. And, you know, you can see how that would work on the stage and how that would work in mindfulness as well. I think the difference is in theater, you want to just be able to react as quickly as possible to the given circumstances. But in mindfulness, you do want to be able to respond a little bit a little bit more measuredly, because like if you and I are on stage together, the audience wants it to go south or get really intense or something. Mm -hmm. you know? But of course, in life, we don't want to see that happen. You know, we don't want to see two people escalating an argument. You know, we want them to be able to figure it out with some kindness and some care and some compassion. So I just had this light bulb moment and I thought, all right, well, let's put our toe in the water here of, of learning about what mindfulness is some more. So I took online classes from an organization called Mindful Schools, and they'd been doing online classes for years now before the pandemic. And I just loved it. I got to work with people all over the world, you know, in class settings, and we'd do breakout rooms, I believe. And we'd have buddy, you know, partners and buddies that we would 
reach out to during the week when we weren't having class. And we really practiced what it was to have mindful conversations and that sort of things and mindful conflicts. So after about three or four classes, I decided to go and teach mindfulness in two kindergarten classes. So I taught the mindful schools curriculum for about six months and I was going in twice a week. So I was going in a lot and the kids, I really could see them getting it. They were able to focus, able to sit, able to connect their emotions, be able to listen. And I was just really, really excited about the progress of these kids. And Around like April, May, I started running out of curriculum. I guess it was probably April. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go get some mindful books for the kids to, to listen to. And so I went to a, you know, sort of a spiritual bookstore here that was quite popular and big. But I was shocked that they only had like four or five and they weren't very good. You know, it looked like mm-hmm. someone had run them off a, you know, a nice Xerox machine or something. And so I got one that looked a little more professional and simple. And I read it to the kids and they just didn't like it at all. It just, I just see their little heads turning around and looking at each other and looking at the ceiling and, you know, they were just bored. And so I thought, all right, well, this is an opportunity. So I went home and I wrote like four manuscripts of children's books uh, at my dining room table. And I brought them in the next week and I read one of them to the kids. And I think that was Puppy Mind. That's my first book that came out through Parallax Press. And the teacher afterwards came up to me and she said, you know, that's really good. You should probably you know, talk to someone, a publisher or something. And, and I was like, really? Okay. Wow. That's wild. What a odd concept. You know, I thought to myself, but then I, I, I met another person named J.G. Lorichette, who runs the Mindful Life Project up in Richmond, California. Um, I saw him on Katie Couric. He was uh, invited to talk about his program. And he and I became buddies. And he looked at the, the couple of those manuscripts and also agreed that they were they were good. And so he introduced me to a publisher of, of his that he knew, a friend of his that he knew. And that's how I got this two book deal to do Puppy Mind and The Lion and Me. And then they eventually published my curriculum. And the publisher was started by a really renowned Buddhist monk called Thich Nhat Hanh, who is quite respected in the world. I think he won a Nobel Peace Prize given to him by Martin Luther King. And anyway, so I'm really proud to be with this publishing house. And so that's it, really. That's sort of the the long story of it all. I hope that wasn't too long-winded. I apologize to anyone who <laughs> been. No, I think that's a wonderful story. And I think so important for everyone to understand the context of how you got to where you are. Tell me why mindfulness is so important for youth, because it's something that I don't think that we do talk about enough when when kids are young. It's something that you see it later on, maybe on some of these wellness sites for, you know, maybe burned out professionals. You don't hear it oftentimes at an early age. So tell me why it's important and kind of what all you instill in these kids through that. Well, kids are in school to learn different languages, right? They're there to learn the language of English or, or Mandarin or Spanish or French, whatever it is, the language of math, the language of art, history. And 
I really just think mindfulness is another language. It's in the same way that you and I can tie our shoes without thinking about it. That's that's how I, I feel about mindfulness. We really want to get uh, it into their bodies and their minds and their hearts at a really young age. So when they're feeling a big emotion that they can just, they know what to do. They can take a deep breath. They can wiggle their toes. They can check in with their hearts and minds and bodies and just see what's up in there so they can be skillful with these big feelings that they're having and that, that they will have throughout their lifetimes. So that's, that's, I think, the reason why I think it's so valuable to get kids exposed to social emotional learning in general at such an early age. You know, mindfulness is just a piece of social emotional learning. So I really try to teach sort of a lot of social emotional learning skills throughout the year so they can really sort of pick and choose what works for them and what doesn't. And I will say that my husband actually volunteers at San Quentin Prison and he does restorative justice circles. They select about 12 guys and they come in once a week before the pandemic and they were able to talk about their lives before their crimes, what led up to their crime. And they also start talking about their emotional landscapes and understanding their emotional landscapes. And in fact, my husband sometimes plays some games that I use with my kids, my fifth graders and, you know, and fourth graders and all the way down to pre-K a game that allows them to understand when emotions show up in their own bodies so that they can be skillful with them. And some of the guys have said to Jim quite clearly, I wish I had had this stuff, these skills, these these tools when I was a kid, because I probably wouldn't have made the choices that I did when I was 18, 19, 20. You know, when you're just, when you have all those hormones raging and your mind isn't, you know, fully cooked and you're trying to find your your tribe your community and you know you're just hungry to to belong and you know wouldn't it have been nice if they had some of these life skills that we're teaching the kids now it would have been i think a different scenario a different outcome that's so incredible to think that these exercises i think could work for anybody at any stage of life and that these are important skills to have to be dealing with your emotions because you're right you know at a young age we experience our feelings so deeply but we don't always know how to process it in a you know in a productive way well i think even still as adults as well yeah. but you know we always joke about a lot of times i'll talk to people and they'll say that even when they've gone through really difficult life scenarios they still say that 7th grade middle school was maybe mm. the hardest time of their life because i think everybody is just going through it and they yeah. don't really know how to deal with it and everybody can be just so mean yeah. and yeah i think having some of these social emotional skills i think that would have made such a difference for so many of us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if we could have just been kinder. You know, I think a lot of times adults don't show up in a way that kids really need them to. I totally see kids, especially boys, not allowed to cry, uh, sort of shaming them for crying. You know, it's okay. It's only a toy. You'll get it tomorrow. Just stuff like that, that, you know, is just not really helpful. You don't really want to try to talk someone out of their feelings, mm -hmm. um, no matter the age. Like, what have I said to you? You know, <laughs> it's just a guy, you know, you'll, you'll find another guy if, you yeah. know, open up with someone. I mean, does that feel very good? No, you want to say, oh, that really is terrible. I'm so sorry that happened to you. 
And that's what we don't do to kids. We don't often, we don't do that with kids. And it's well-meaning because who likes to see people cry? But what often happens just with anyone, but I think about the boys is because I'm a boy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, that if we don't allow the kids to cry, just anger, anger kind of conceals the sadness. And that's the only thing left is that this anger sort of armoring up to protect the shame of being ridiculed for being sad because you didn't get your stuffed animal or you didn't get to go on a bike ride or or whatever. And it's just it just sort of wounds me to to think that all these well-meaning adults around the globe do this to kids every second of the day. So I, I just really want to kind of try to change that paradigm that it's just okay. You know, every emotion is okay. Every action is not. But I think what happens is adults feel like traumatized themselves when they see a kid with an uncomfortable emotion. Um, So they try to fix it because if they're uncomfortable, that means I'm uncomfortable. And what we have to do is tend to our own uncomfortability, take that breath and go, it's, I'm just having a reaction to this kid's big emotion, but now let me see if I can be with them while they go through this big emotion. And that's hard to do, but I think that's why we need to all learn social emotional learning skill learning so we can be with each other in times of grief and anger and all of it and i will say too that that i really want to kind of uh let go of the idea that emotions are negative or positive because that's also very very shaming to kids and it also just is just sort of in our consciousness as we're approaching situations that are that are uncomfortable like oh there there they go again there's valerie going again having a negative emotion because mm-hmm. she you know, her boyfriend you know she broke up with her boyfriend or whatever it is <laughs> keep making up the story i'm sorry valerie i don't how even, did you know <laughs> i don't know anything um no i'm kidding um but uh, that's just a bad idea to i think think of things as negative or positive when it comes to emotions. Perhaps thoughts can be negative, but I think emotions are are not. They're difficult, they're uncomfortable, but anger, let's say, in a dark alley is not a bad emotion, right? No one would ever say, I can't believe you got angry because that person was coming at you with a two by four, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, no, you. I hope you got angry. I hope you protected yourself, mm-hmm. you know? Some, if if we're in a relationship and someone's treating us badly and we say, you know what, I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. Is that a negative emotion? No. no, no, of course not. But for whatever reason, we've labeled emotions as negative and positive. And it's really does a, us a disservice because then we wind up feeling depressed because we have emotions that people have said to us are terrible. And certainly that's not what we want to do to each other nor to kids for that matter. Yeah, I would imagine that a lot of the adults that are telling kids not to cry or getting uncomfortable with the children's emotions, I think they experienced it themselves when they were young. And we actually, a couple of months ago at work, we had our all-employee summit and I led a workshop on emotional intelligence and we did a little exercise. And one of the exercises, we had people stand up if they, if, you know, a certain statement applied to them. And one of those was, 
if somebody has told you you were being too emotional. Mm. Most of the people in the room stood up. All of the men stood up. Really? Yeah, I could totally, I could totally understand why it was something I love my family, but you know, it was something that I experienced myself as, as a girl and something that I've had to kind of reckon with, especially in the pandemic, being alone with our thoughts a lot more, but realizing that if I take five minutes to just cry it out over a a negative situation that has happened, I feel a lot better. Right. Yeah. Or a difficult situation, right? Yes. it may not even be negative. It, it, it could just be difficult. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I totally, I totally want that for us all is to just notice that, oh, this is just really uncomfortable for me. And so I'm just trying to put out this fire rather than am I really being of service to the, the people mm-hmm. that are going through this right now? And often I think we may not be. You know, and of course it's case by case, but it, it it's sort of a human thing to to just freak out when someone's having a having a you know a big emotion like like even on a plane. You know, when a baby starts crying, I don't know about you, but like the hairs on the back of my neck mm-hmm. go up. I yes. just fix that, please. You know, mm-hmm. and and I think it's actually this primal like. Well, if a baby's crying in the cave, let's say something is wrong. So we need to keep the baby quiet because maybe that'll attract the saber toothed tiger or uh, maybe the baby's sick and that could cause maybe there's illness there that might spread to all of us. So I think it's this really primal thing in us that we can tend to almost like a child and then realize, okay, this is just my primal nature coming forth. I can actually soothe that. So then the baby crying is not such a, a big issue any longer. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I had never thought of that, but I think our evolution does play such a huge role in how we feel that a lion is chasing us when something yeah. a lot less significant than that is right. taking place. That's right. And, you know, I've often remind myself that sometimes people live with lions. It may Mm -hmm. show up in the form of your your mother or your father or older sibling or whatever, but it's the same kind of energy of I have to protect myself. And unfortunately, that's true for probably a billion or plus people on the planet that they just don't feel safe where they live, depending, you know, it might not be your family structure, but it might be the fact that you have food insecurity or housing insecurity or whatever. And it's often we think I th- it's important to be in fight, flight, or freeze all the time because something terrible might happen. But I think it beho- behooves us to know when we can drop out of fight, flight, or freeze or not, because it's just such a gift to our bodies to just say, you're okay. You know, you can take that breath. You can really relax your shoulders. You can relax your belly. You can relax your forehead safe in this moment. I think that is just so important because I see where the temptation is sometimes to expect that something is going to go wrong and Mm -hmm. to be kind of on guard because then you think, well, I'm not going to be surprised when this happens, but you don't get, you really don't have that moment to exhale. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is, fascinating. I was just, it's interesting we're talking about this because I was just listening to Brene Brown. And if you don't know who Brene Brown is, people (laughs) uh, definitely Google her. There's some great 
she's just amazing. But she was saying the most uncomfortable emotion there is, is joy. Because of what you're saying is if I feel really joyful in this moment, then there might be, if, if I really let this moment really exist for me fully, I could be wounded in the future. You know, like if I say to myself, God, I love this human being in front of mm -hmm. me, or I love this house or whatever, that it can actually the, the body has this primal need to protect itself. So it doesn't want to completely open up to the moment. I found really, really interesting. I'm still sort of processing it, but I, I'm intrigued by that concept that joy is something really scary for a lot of us. And, you know, if we can just try to just really welcome it when it, sh when it does show up, because for me, it's not every minute of the day, you know, mm -hmm. there's to do. I'm working with kids and can be stressful. And, and yet it's such a gift when we just say, yes, this is terrific. I love that. I'd never heard that before, but I completely agree that when you say, I really love this person, I really love this home. I really love where I'm at. Right. I think once you acknowledge that sometimes it, you think, well, now it can be taken away from me. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I remember thinking I, there was this time where I felt like my husband and I had just like a ton of friends. Um, mm -hmm. we, still have, we still have a fair amount, but not as much as we used to. And I just was like, whoa, there's so many people that I just really treasure in our lives. And that worried me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That makes sense. You know, it's just like I, maybe someone will move away or someone will get sick or something terrible will happen. And I just, my primal nature kind of worried about losing that joy that I felt of, of, of that community that we had. Well, how do, how do we lean into the joy? Because I think that's something that it, it's been a difficult year, year and a half, I guess, coming up on two years with this yeah. pandemic and with everything else going on in the world and, and normal life challenges as well. I think we could all use a little bit more joy. So how do we really live in the moment of that yeah. and use some of these practices for that? Yeah. You know, I would, for me, I'll just speak to my own personal experience during, especially during the pandemic. I was lucky enough that I have a running practice and I have a swimming practice. And so I ran with community two or three times a week and I swam in San Francisco Bay at least three or four times a week, if not every day during the pandemic, because it was such a sort of present moment awareness experience. You know, the water's cold, there's sea lions and seals, and it's the water's kind of murky, so you can't really see what's going on. But then you have the, the beautiful skyline of San Francisco and the Golden Gate Bridge. And so that that really helped me feel connected. I had my own fears around like the end of the world and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't feel disconnected to community during that time, which was a real gift to me. Mm -hmm. So I always feel like if folks are loners and they, that's just their habit, you know, that's one of the things I love about mindfulness is it's just a new habit that we can take on. And I would say to people that don't have community, think of, think of things that you love to do, you know, whether it's a hike, you know, maybe you like to hike, maybe you like to see, go see movies, you know, whatever it is, see if there's a way you can 
do that with community. You know, maybe it's like a monthly movie night with a couple friends, you know, either at your house or at a movie theater or, or a monthly hike or a weekly hike or, or a weekly walk, you know, something that's pleasant. Just think of little ways that you can continue to create community and lean into that fear of, of, of the joy that might show up when you, when you see these people that are close to you. So that's what I would say is connect with community. Certainly gratitude is important. It's something I try to do a lot. It's just when you see something, say something, you know, like notice, notice, oh my gosh, this is such a gorgeous day, or I love the rain coming down or, or the, you know, the trees or a person's clothing or whatever it is, just really try to cultivate that noticing practice, which is what mindfulness is, is a noticing practice. And that is, that also can be a way to practice gratitude is notice the cool things that you see throughout the day, the things that make you smile. We play a game with the kids called finding the pleasant in the present. And we, I basically have them close their eyes or invite them to close their eyes. And I'll say, let's imagine we're in a junkyard and just see what you can see in this junkyard that makes you smile. And they'll come up with the coolest things like, uh, you know, an old bike, a puddle, a kitten, um, a stuffed animal, you know, I mean, it's just the cutest things, you know, and I just have all these different scenarios that I'll put them in. Like, let's pretend we're in a traffic jam. What do you see? Oh, I see a dog next to the car. Oh, I see my cousin in the car next to me. I see a cloud that looks like a seagull, whatever it is. And just look, it's called finding the pleasant in the present. I think I said that, or basically it's looking for the good. And then another, another thing that I like to do with the kids is we'll play a gratitude game. And there's a couple of ones that I play. And one of them is we'll sit in a circle and hopefully the circle isn't too big. If we have like 20 kids in the class, it can be a little hard. But what we do is we just go around the room and we say what we're grateful for. But here's the little kicker is you have to remember what everyone else said before you. So it's a little stressful and it helps you kind of connect with everyone else and also sort of allows you to sort of feel what it's like to say that you're grateful for your mother, even though you, you didn't say that, but the person three, three people down from you did. So hopefully you can get around the entire circle uh, with everyone trying to remember what the, the last person or the last many people said, if, if that makes sense. And then the other one is the flower of gratitude breathing. And basically you put you put all your fingers together. So you have basically two flower petals sort of sticking up, right? Sort of in front of your face. And then with each breath in, you're going to exhale saying one thing you're grateful for. So let's say I say I'm grateful for my mother. And so my thumb goes down. And then the next person or yourself, you can do this by yourself too. The next person or yourself takes a breath and says, I'm grateful for my dog. And then eventually all your hands should be nice and flat, like almost like a pancake or an open flower. So you'd have all your 10 fingers flat as a pancake uh, in front of you. And if you wanted to, you could even keep going and go back up to 20 and close the flower petal, if that makes sense. I think these are such cool exercises and a great way to be present in the moment. I've, I've heard that 
when you're practicing gratitude, it is literally impossible to be outside of the moment. Mm -hmm. And these are exercises that are fantastic for children. I think very appropriate for them, but also just as appropriate for adults to be practicing because so often when I'm not happy, I'm also not really noticing I I had a wake up call not too long ago where I was complaining about a lot of things and I had someone say, hey, you have a really great job. You have these great things happening in your life. And whether or not there were stressful situations taking place and challenges, I had to kind of did bring me back to, yes, I do have some really fantastic things that I don't practice gratitude for enough. And Hearing from somebody else that they're grateful for a parent that maybe you didn't mention or something like that, that is such a great way to kind of jog your memory on the things and the people that you might be taking for granted. Mm -hmm. And often I'll see in that game where we're going around the circle that if someone says family, you probably get three or four people after that that say family because it is such a rich feeling in the body to think about how much you care for your family. So yeah, it's a it's a it's a sweet exercise and it's an important one and it's like at Thanksgiving. It's such a good exercise to just share what you're grateful for at Thanksgiving. We do that in my family or or mm-hmm. my kind of chosen family as well as family that comes together on Thanksgiving and I love it. I just and and it's such a nice thing because it it doesn't encourage rebuttal or sort of back and forth dialogue. It just says, you know what, this is what I'm grateful for. And then you, you all sort of just say thank you. And then you go to the next person and they share and, and so on and so on. And I I really appreciate that because often conversations can just, I don't know, people cut you off or they sort of try to top you or, you know what I mean? Like, you Mm -hmm. know, I, I, sometimes I have to say, I'm kind of disheartened in the way conversations tend to go these days. (laughs) I don't know about you, but it's interesting how people aren't really there for each other in a really kind way. It's more there, they sort of zone out when you're talking too long or they don't ask you follow-up questions. And I, I really, I really feel like that's one of my skills is, you know, if someone's talking, I'll ask clarifying questions. I'll say, tell me more. I'll, want to see their vacation photos. And I mean, sometimes I'll I'll feel like I'll go on this really cool trip and someone will ask me, oh, how was that trip? And I'll say, oh, it was great. And then they'll, they'll just switch the conversation. And it's just really interesting where we're at around really connecting with one another. And I, I feel like, you know, mindfulness really helps us connect with each other in more meaningful ways. So it, that's something I'm, I'm really, glad that I have in my in my toolkit as I sort of go through life. I completely agree with everything you have to say about the art of conversations nowadays. I have some mm. nightmares about the dating apps and some of the conversations that were, you know, very one-sided one-word answers and I I see that in real life as well just with people that that I know that unfortunately I think people are so often thinking of either the next thing that they're going to say or when somebody asks you a question and they don't really want to know the answer, they just kind of want to tell you what theirs. And, you know, I think that's certainly something we're not as present as we could be when it comes to conversation. Do you have any tips as we start to kind of reconnect in this new world, how we can be more present with others and kind of hold space for each other? Yeah. (laughs) You know what I do? 
sort of a little trick is I talk about this with several of my close friends who tend to be real fixers or talkers. And I'll say, you know, you know what I really get frustrated by is when people try to be interesting rather than interested. Mm-hmm. And and I just want people to just lean in and go, oh, really? And then what happened? Oh, you know, tell me more. Rather than show up ready to tell you about all the f- fabulous things that they've been doing for the last week or mm-hmm. or whatever it is. So just just kind of, it's a little stealthy, maybe it's a little manipulative, I apologize, <laughs> but just sort of say, you know, that those are, these are my expectations is I really want us both to be interested in what each other has to say. Now, what I do for myself, if conversations aren't going the, the way that I want, I don't try to fix them. I really just try to breathe, wiggling my toes, leaning in and and I, try, and I try to get as curious as possible, even though there might be frustration there that I haven't been able to talk at all during lunch or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. And I'll just say, you know what? This is where they need to share this stuff now. So I'm going to lean in. I'm going to just connect and really sort of open my heart to this person who obviously ha- has a very primal need here to, to speak. I think I think that's so important. I love your method with with the other people as well, but but you know, in your own case too, just not trying to fix the conversation. I think so often that is our first instinct that I don't like how this is going and I'm but I think getting curious is important and in instead of leaning into the frustration but really kind of seeking to understand a little bit more. Yeah. So I, I do think that is incredibly important. Yeah. But, you know, like I, I would imagine, you know, with the dating stuff, I mean, you sort of have your life flash before your eyes when someone's only answering <laughs> questions or one word answers or doesn't ask you anything about yourself. You know, you also have to be I have I would have to be discerning, you know, like this mm-hmm. isn't going to work for me long term. You know, yeah, I can yeah. do this for an hour over a, a glass of wine, but this isn't going to work. Interest level doesn't increase. <laughs> often, you know, yeah. uh, or after, you know, a few dates, you're like, okay, now this is going to basically give me a sense of what we're dealing with here. <laughs> and uh, yeah, run, not walk to, or yeah, to the nearest exit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If there isn't a question for me at some point, then yeah. forget about it. But, you know, it's certainly, I, I think it's a problem with so many and I think that we don't recognize. And I, I mean, I can certainly get into it myself from time to time. I think yeah. so many of us do, but to be aware of it and to be aware of ourselves, I think is incredibly important too. Right. I mean, it's, you know, if you look at like social media, how many people, you know, you know, post interesting content, but don't respond to what you're up to. That's really telling like, oh, look at me do this fabulous thing. Oh, look at me do this fabulous thing. And yet when you do a fabulous thing, there's crickets from those mm-hmm. people who are doing the f- other said fabulous thing. And I just think that's really interesting. You know, we've really sort of let our egos kind of run the show uh, in the last 10 years or so with the advent of social media that we've really forgotten how to be curious about people's lives. So 
Yeah, I think social media really has exacerbated this because, I mean, you're basically shouting into the void, this is what I'm doing and here's a picture of me. And I I kind of laugh even with – and I take my share of selfies, but 10, 15, 20 years ago, we would never have been to the extent that we are. And I'm sure, you know, especially for youth growing up on social media, I was in high school when MySpace came mm-hmm. out. So I gone through at least, you know, grade school and everything without experiencing that. But it was part of, you know, kind of growing up for me. But for these kids now, I mean, their, their, their birth – is on social media. And I'm sure that has to have such an effect for them. Do you find that social media is something that that you end up talking about a lot? You know, thankfully, since it's pre-K through fifth, and I'm in a school that, you know, is basically a Title I school, they don't have, they don't talk about their phones. I don't see their phones a lot. They don't mention social media. So yeah, so I don't bring up social media with the kids. It's just, yeah, it's just not something that we, we talk about. Although I, I wish, I wish in some ways I, I could talk about it with them or, but I don't know, do fifth graders have social media accounts? What do you think? I'm I'm not even sure anymore. I feel so out of touch. Yeah. Um, I just know that you know they they have phones at a much younger age, you know, than I ever did. And then you know, my my dad would always joke when I was asking for a phone in middle school, and I think I got one in eighth grade. But he would always joke, I didn't get a cell phone till I was forty. But <laughs> um, but you do see them getting them younger and younger, and they understand how the cameras work a lot better. And so I'm not sure as far as social media goes, other than the fact that they're at least aware of it from a much younger age, I'd imagine. Yeah, I I, I hope I hope these kids aren't getting on social media at this age that would really worry me because because it is it's it is addictive I'm on social media and I certainly look at it I try not to yeah I I guess I do post I'm gonna be honest I I post (laughs) I post stuff that interests me but it's usually not related to me Um, unless I'm trying to promote my books or something, but it'll be an article about, you know, social emotional learning, or I just posted something the other day about monarchs, uh, and they're doing better in certain areas of California and just stuff like that, that I, that sort of excite me and make me happy that I'm grateful about. So stuff like that, that interests me. And I hope sort of lifts other people up, but I certainly don't do a lot of stuff around like a a weekend trip or a dinner out or something. I wouldn't, I don't post like that typically. I think those are some good practices because I think so often with social media, we forget about it as being kind of an information sharing and being able to share articles and interesting things that we're finding that might not be about ourselves and and the stories that we hear. I mean, podcasting for me has been the opportunity to share what what others are up to and and their stories. And I love that. But I think so often it is very easy to get into, here's my vacation. Here I am looking very nice, uh, you know, on a right. night out. And so I, I like your practices with that. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't see a lot of information about podcasts on social media. You know, I mm-hmm. I have you know fair amount of friends, and I don't see oh listen listen to this great podcast or you know or whatnot. So I, I would like that to change because I love podcasts. I you know if I drive down to swim, I'll listen to a podcast almost every single time, and uh, I really appreciate 
just that knowledge. And it's usually a mindfulness podcast. So I, I just really value that medium. Well, I'll definitely have to get some of your recommendations on mindfulness podcasts because I am yeah. always looking for something kind of uplifting and helpful and useful for for my life. And I think that I think mindfulness, especially in this last year and a half, has played such an important role in how I'm functioning on a day-to-day basis. Hasn't it been a gift? I mean, you know, you just feel like, oh my gosh, without mindfulness, without you know, remembering to take a slow breath. I don't know. The day would be so much different and the year especially would be so much different. So I'm so thankful that I stumbled upon it eight, nine years ago. Absolutely. Now, I'd love to know, because you're working with mindfulness in the schools and you're getting to know all these kids at such a young age, do you have any interesting stories that you'd like to share about how mindfulness has changed their lives? Gosh, so many, so many. I have this one story. It was from a sixth grader. I think his name was Alex. And he, I was working with him in fifth grade and he came back to the school a couple of years ago and he went up to his primary teacher and said, Hey, is the mindfulness guy still around? And she said, yep, yep. And she, he said, can you tell him that I know I was sort of in and out of mindfulness and didn't really take it seriously all the time, but let him know that I'm, I'm meditating every day and I, this year I got all A's and a B and I used to get in fights all the time, but now this year I've only gotten to one fight and, you know, it just really just sort of lit me up that he realized its value and transformed his life, you know, in sixth grade. So let's, let's hope he's on a really wonderful trajectory that, you know, he can really... So, and then the other, God, there's so many, but the one that I always like to tell is this little boy in first grade, uh, I want to say his name was Jomar. Uh, he went, he was living with his grandmother. I don't know where his mom was, but she wasn't in the picture. And he, of course, had a lot of trauma in his life. And he went to the doctor with his grandma and the doctor tried testing his blood pressure and it was so high. She, the doctor was so concerned. And, and I think Jomar had the idea of doing this poem that I do with the kids. And so the grandmother knew it too, so that they did the poem together. And then the doctor took his blood pressure and it had dropped back down into the normal range. So just little, these little moments really light me up in a way that I just can't even express fully. So those are two stories that come to mind. And of course, I run into kids in the hallway all the time that are upset and and I, I do this fun game with them where I check in with how they're doing. And I'll say, oh boy, it looks like you're having a big, big emotion. And they'll nod their head. And I say, do you feel hot or cold? And they'll say, um, you know, I feel hot. Uh, do you feel big or little? And they'll say, I feel little. And do you feel like your heart's being fast or slow? And they'll say it's being fast. And I'll say, is your mind busy or still? And they'll say it's busy. And I'll just kind of do this body scan with them. And then I'll say, all right, that's great. Do you think you can wiggle your toes for me? Um, And so if they can, that means that they're thinking a little bit more clearly because if they're not, they're not going to be able to even wiggle their toes because they're so frustrated or pent up or angry or sad that they just can't even think clearly. So just by doing that, they're able to drop out of fight, flight, or freeze. Their prefrontal cortex goes back online and they're able to connect with their mind 
more clearly. And and I'll say, you know, if they can wiggle their toes, I'll say, oh my gosh, that's fantastic. And then we might do some breathing work together, like I have something called breathing ball breath or spidey breathing or Wonder Woman breathing or coyote breathing. And after we do that for a few times, they're ready to go back into class and um, and I haven't asked them why they're upset, which I could do, but it really would just be about them trying to prove they were right about the situation. And that doesn't help them very much, does it? It mm-hmm. just kind of cements their their need to be the hero of their own lives, which of course we all want to be, but sometimes mm-hmm. we make mistakes and you know we need to apologize and learn from them and and then take a breath and move on. And so I, I witnessed that a lot with these kids. I love that exercise. I think that a lot of times you're you're so right that it, the situation itself is maybe not as relevant. It's labeling the not even the emotion, but labeling how you are feeling in your body yeah. and right, the sensations. Yeah. And I mean, because I think about how I feel in these, you know, as you were going through the questions, I was thinking about how I've felt in recent scenarios myself and just how that really does bring you back into your body. And I mean, that that's such a that's such a wonderful skill for these kids to have at such a young age. And as they go into middle school, you know, the sixth grader you spoke with, that's that's so incredible that he's continuing to use these practices and that these are tools that are in his toolbox for the rest of his life. Right. It's, you know, like, it's like we said earlier, it's like he's learned that language. So now, of course, when he needs to use it, it's there for him. It's like anything, anything we do often enough is there at our fingertips, just like tying the shoe that I mentioned. So it's it's pretty exciting stuff. That's what I want them to learn is these sort of healthy habits of mind that they'll never forget. So yeah, I'm crossing my fingers that many of them will take these practices into their own lives and into their own families. Because, you know, a lot of times, they learn to be in fight, flight, or freeze from their families. And so if if they can realize that they need to show up for their the young people in their life when they're adults, sort of real kind, curious, and focused, and adult way, then that would be uh, just uh, amazing. Yeah, what a gift. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I'm so inspired by everything you're doing. And I think, you know, again, this is truly a gift for the children that are going through it. They're going to grow up and have, you know, a language, as you said, that they're going to be able to, you know, help the future generations. But I think healing within your own family, because these things are instilled in us from a young age and for your family to see that these are some practices that you're taking on. Those are things that they can learn from their kids as well to see them experiencing their emotions in a different way and in such an, a place of awareness. So what an incredible program that you're, that you're doing. I love it. You know, I, and it's such a gift for me too, because to go into a classroom of 20 kids plus sometimes that you don't know that well, you know, I, yes, I've known these kids for years, but I've only spent 20 minutes a week with them years. So I know most of their names um, at this point. I haven't seen them in a year and a half. So I'm just sort of remembering their names again. But to walk into that sort of charged atmosphere often is such a great skill for me to be able to deal with my own uncomfortability, my own big emotions, my own forgetting to breathe, all that sort of stuff. It's such a gift for me to go, all right, what do we know how to do here? We know how Mm -hmm. to take breath. We need, we can wiggle our toes. 
we can listen. And that sometimes is all we need to begin to be skillful again, even though, you know, the seas are rocky. (laughs) I absolutely love that. And now before I let you go, and I could honestly talk to you about all of this for another hour at least, I'd love to ask you just a few of our rapid fire questions so the listeners can get to know you. Wonderful. So my first question would be, what is your top wellness tip? Oh, gosh, so many. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, remembering to take a slow, deep breath throughout your day, many times a day, and try to wiggle your toes and see what that feels like as a way to just do a reset. It's simple, but it's not easy to remember. I love that. I definitely, something that I'm working on myself. Me too. Me too. <laughs> Where is your favorite travel destination? My family has had a cabin in the Sierras since I was like two years old. So I would have to say it's that place. It's such a beautiful place. It's near a river and it's just kind of heaven for me. That sounds so beautiful. I am dying to take a trip and that just sounds, it's, it sounds amazing. Yeah. It's pretty nice. People, people pretty love it up there. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. If you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? Mm, I think, you know, I think I would be an osprey. And just they're great flyers. They go to South America every winter (laughs) (laughs) up to the United States in the summer. Sounds fabulous. And uh, they eat fish and I like eating fish. And yeah, I just, I just like the bird and there's some spiritual stuff around it, which I'm not going to go into because we don't have enough time, but anyway. <laughs> well, that is, that is such a cool animal. They're, they're absolutely beautiful animals and they're so they cool are. to watch. I'll definitely have to look into some of the spiritual stuff too. Uh, yeah. I might have, to, I'll email you offline or something. It's yes, a, it's please. A personal spiritual experience. Oh, that's amazing. Now, if you could master a completely new skill, what would that be? Oh, gosh. Oh, my Lord. Let's say guitar. Guitar. Okay. Yeah. Do you have a, do you have a particular song that you'd want to play? Um, probably anything James Taylor sings. I love yeah. James Taylor. And in fact, I'm going to see him in concert, my first concert in two years. Oh, uh, yeah. On, so I'm excited. Well, that's very exciting. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. And what is next for you on your bucket list? Oh my goodness. I really just want to keep practicing mindfulness. I, you know, I'm so, I've been so blessed with a great life, have done so many different things. And I realize that, especially now that I've done so many things, that happiness for me is an inside job. I still think if you're young, I think you should go out there and try to seek happiness um, in some ways. But as I get older, I realize that for me, I just want to cultivate happiness from within. That's beautiful. I, yeah, I, I think that, I mean, we can do all of the things in the world, but if we're not happy with ourselves and they, they say, you know, wherever you go, there you are. And I totally, I didn't understand that for a long time, but it's so true. Yeah. Yeah. And I, but, but having said that, I would not say that I would not want a 20 year old or a 30 year old to say, oh, just meditate and, you know, and just be happy that way. You know, if if they have dreams to travel or to get a, this job or that job, I really would encourage them to do that. But 
like I said, I'm 56. I, I, I've had a really good run and I am not <laughs> planning to leave the planet anytime soon, but it's just, to me, it's really about cultivating that awareness that with every moment I can cultivate gratitude, kindness, and curiosity. I love that. And you're making the world a better place while doing that. I really do see that with the stories you've told and what you're doing in the schools and with, you know, with our youth and instilling these practices in them from such a young age, because again, they will be able to take this with them for the rest of their lives. Now, before I let you go, I would love for you to share a little bit about your books and where listeners can find you and connect. Sure. They can go to Andrew J. Initial Nance, N A N C E dot com, and you can check out my books there. You can go to Mindful Arts San Francisco's website if you're interested in volunteering and you live in the San Francisco. Bay Area. We'd love to have you. And my books are Puppy Mind, about that wandering mind we all have, The Lion and Me, about anger and how to name and tame our anger. And then The Barefoot King is about a young king who stubs his toe and tries to change the world, but winds up learning how to change his mind instead. And then the last one is my curriculum, Mindful Arts in the Classroom, which is a almost 300-page curriculum that shares many of these stories. There's 10 more stories in there from all over the world that I've written. And there's art activities in there, and there's theater games in there. And it's, uh, it's just a really fun book to bring to the kids because I think it kind of blows blows that idea out of the water that mindfulness is just about sitting on a cushion mm-hmm. and learning get good at that. As you and I both know, it's about taking what we've experienced on the cushion out into the world, which is that ability to be focused, curious, and kind to ourselves, even though we have all sorts of impulses to get up off of that cushion and do something different. We're just going to stay with what is so we can learn to ride the waves of our day with that curiosity and care. So it's it's a it's a really fun book that teachers I think around the world are really embracing. I truly think this should be in every classroom, something that would benefit really all ages. And I'm so glad that you said that because I think, yes, you know, sitting on the cushion is great, but it, we, we do live in the world and we have people in our lives and challenges that we're going to face. And it's so important to be able to take those lessons with us. So, you know, I love what you're doing. I think these books just sound absolutely incredible for the students and and for for the adults as well who are going through it. And so, I truly want to thank you for coming on and for sharing with us. Thank you so much, Valerie. This has been a real pleasure. I was so inspired by this conversation with Andrew and really excited to hear about the impact that Mindful Arts San Francisco is having on the children who are going through the program now. I truly believe that curriculum like this should be taught in all of our schools, and it was so impactful to hear the stories of these students. I loved learning about the different gratitude games that the students get to play, and I'm definitely going to try to incorporate more of these games into my own life as well. Let me know if you try any of them out. I've linked Andrew's information in the show notes along with his books and my Arts San Francisco. I encourage you to check them out to learn more, especially if you live in the San Francisco area. Thank you so much for tuning into Wellness and Wanderlust. If you have a topic you'd like us to explore in a future episode, we're already planning for 2022. So don't hesitate to reach out to me on Instagram, 
Wellness and Wanderlust blog or by email at Valerie at wellnessandwanderlust.net. Please feel free to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts to lend your support to the show. It really does make a difference. So if you find yourself tuning in from week to week, I would love to know what you're thinking about the show. Hope you have a very happy Thanksgiving and I will see you next week.